So I've never done an outdoor service, and I don't know if you have. Um, so we're going to change up a couple things today, but we're just going to go straight into the Word. We'll learn briefly about what the text has to teach us, um, and then we'll pray, and then we'll eat. <laughs> I think that's why many of us are here today, but uh, still, I mean, it's kind of an unusual circumstance through the pandemic that churches are able to publicly worship like this and uh, even demonstrate what worship looks like uh, to those who would never even enter the walls of a church. And so it's a unique experience. It could be a little awkward. Obviously, you know, everything's open. We can see everyone around us. There might be some distraction. Uh, so as much as you can, try to focus. And uh, our sermon is a little bit briefer today than normal, so uh, it should be ideal to your taste. Let's go into 1 Corinthians. We've been reading, of course, um, the first epistle to the Corinthians by Paul. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can turn to the New Testament. Um, and it's the first letter to the Corinthians, not the second. Chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. So we've already read uh, the opening to this letter. Uh, the first 17 verses, we've looked at the greeting, the thanksgiving prayer, and then we looked at the introduction to the letter last week. And we talked about some of the contextual elements to the city of Corinth, the demographic, the people, the culture, the Hellenistic influence within the culture. And we've looked at sort of all of these different historical layers to better understand the context in which the Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthians. And so let's read these verses and look at what I believe to be a central argument to the first four chapters of the first letter, uh, first letter to the Corinthians. So let's read it, 18 to 25. This is what the Word of God reads. For the word of the cross is foolish, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. This is the word of God. Uh, I'm going to begin today a little bit differently. I know some of you might be new to church or maybe just getting in your feet into church. And so before I talk about what Paul is teaching here today, there's a central teaching you must first understand before even understand before even trying to understand what Paul is talking about. That is, of course, the gospel that unites the Christian faith. Uh, so I want to quickly sum up what that gospel is. Uh, for the Christians here, it'll be a good reminder to you. And for the non-Christians, a good opportunity to hear what I, what I hope to be uh, my best articulation, a good summary of what the Christian faith believes. So this is um, a brief introduction to the gospel. And the reason I do this also is because Paul is defending the gospel here. And so before we talk about it, you have to know what he's defending. So I'm, I've narrowed it down to four categories. Um, so follow along with me. We believe that God is creator, the creator. God is the author and creator of the heavens and the earth, all the universe. He made all things. All the things, all things are made by and through him. He uniquely made man and woman in his image for the purpose of his glory in all creation. This God is perfect in every way and holy in every way. 
He is loving, compassionate, and good, but does not leave sin unpunished. We also believe that man is sinful, that man is sinner. Sin is disobedience of God's commands in word, thought, or deed. It is a violation or act of rebellion against God and His will. Every person is guilty of sin. We all fall short and are transgressors against God. We are all accountable before this God, guilty before the innocent creation, creation under the Creator. The wage of sin is death. All sinners deserve the judgment and wrath of God as punishment, both physical and spiritual death, eternal separation from God. We also believe that Christ is our Savior. The death that all sinners deserve, Jesus Christ came to earth in human form, truly God, truly man. He took on our sins as an atonement or sacrifice on our behalf and died on a cross once and for all. He died the death that we deserve, took on the wrath that we should have received so that we may live eternally and able to be with God. He then rose from the grave in three days, claiming and demonstrating victory over sin and death, proving that He is God. He then ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf and will come again to judge all mankind, living and dead. And finally, we believe that salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. The sinner is then saved by the gracious gift of faith from God. It is not earned or achieved through human effort or works. Faith is having trust in the accomplished work of Christ on the cross, the applied work of Christ in our lives, and the belief that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. Our faith is placed in Jesus as our mediator who will present us righteous, although guilty, before God in our judgment. Our faith is in Jesus as our only hope for salvation. This, is, this in turn leads sinners to repentance, a turning away from sin, although gradual, it is eventual for every true believer. So in light of this, Paul is defending this gospel. Apologies if that summation of the gospel was not satisfactory to your definition, uh, but I tried to touch on the key points of what that gospel really entails. Let's get into 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25 today. I've entitled the sermon today, The Foolish Gospel. One of the harsh realities that all believers must live out and must face is the reality that the Christian gospel is a truth that is not only denied and rejected, but it's deemed foolish and ridiculous by the world. You can come to solace with this reality by simply realizing that the gospel is indeed foolish. In Matthew 10:22, Jesus even goes as far to say that we will be hated for believing in this gospel and following him. Jesus spoke, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. The rhetoric we see here in the Apostle Paul's argument in this letter to the Corinthians, um, who have become themselves so full of pride due to their perceived idea that they have attained some sort of higher wisdom, is that this so-called wisdom of theirs is in fact no wisdom at all. But if you follow that path of human centrality, then what you're left with is nothing more than what you've discovered. It leads to life limited by the limitation of human life itself, both the time you have and the mortal limits of your mind and body. And it is in this very human state, in this very condition, that the so-called intelligent human mind will point to the Christian gospel and claim foolishness. So here's the irony as a Christian. We're to embrace that title of fool. We're to embrace it. Fool for God, fool for His gospel, fool for all of it. For it is the title that is cast upon us by those, uh, 
upon those who have been enlightened by those that have not. And that's fine. That's fine. A lot of Christians are uncomfortable with being called foolish. But the Bible says you will be. And in fact, to the perspective of the world, in the perspective of the world, it is foolish. And it should be that way. I'll get to that. But Paul also knows we are prone to follow the patterns of the world. So if you read Romans 8, he talks about that. Namely, its values and its thoughts. And this will shift our perception of our faith because the world thinks little of the Christian message and it places no value in it at all. This is the very dilemma the Corinthians found themselves in their time. They saw that the Christian gospel was contradictory and even offensive to their cultural set of values and they sought to repackage it in a manner that was presentable to the audience of their age. We do this today as well. Spurgeon once said, the gospel is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended, it just needs to be let out of its cage. The premise of that quote is that we're not able, we shouldn't be adding on to the gospel or trying to make it more presentable or trying to make it easier to consume so as to manipulate its content, to make it appropriate for our listeners. You ever hear that term seeker-friendly? I'm not too good with that term because seeker-friendly is a watered-down gospel. It's a gospel that omits hell, sin, repentance, turning away from sin. It's a gospel that preaches things like prosperity. It's already appropriate and necessary to all listeners throughout all time because everyone is sinful and they need a savior. I have two points to today's message and that's it. The first is the foolishness of man and the second is the power of the gospel. Point number one, the foolishness of man. Paul begins verse 18 with this statement. For the word of the cross, so the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. In modern vernacular, we can just kind of retranslate this to this. Christianity is stupid. I equate the word of the cross to Christianity itself because Christ, his life and his work is integral and central to the faith. And it is that core of the Christian message that was perceived as foolish back then and now and to the Corinthian populace back then. And of course, to the modern audience as well. Many have deemed this message foolish. Paul, however, turns the tables in the following verses as he writes, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. So what we perceive to be higher intelligence, higher wisdom, is in fact inferior to the wisdom that God has given through the gospel. But that doesn't mean that the gospel will make sense to people. Paul sees that the Jews were seeking a Messiah in the shape of their desires. In our church, we've kind of taught this multiple times. The context in which Jesus came is a time where they were seeking a leader, a political hero, a king, someone to kind of hoorah Israel out of Roman, conquer, or Roman occupation. And that's just simply not what Jesus did. So he didn't come in the form and he certainly did not save in the way that they expected, right? It, it, from the perspective of the non-Jew, the Gentile, same thing. If you're, think, if you're being taught of this all-powerful God who saved you and did all these things for you and he's a king and he's a mighty warrior and he's victorious and all these things, certainly dying on a cross is not the image of a savior or of a God for that matter, right? Um, if you think about Greco-Roman culture and like Greek mythology, think about the Greek gods and the Roman gods like Zeus and Poseidon and all of these other like superpowers, right? What is their main trait? 
as human as they are, what makes them immortal is their eternality and their all-powerfulness. So to see a God, to claim that a God came and saved you by dying for you in the most humiliating of ways is offensive to that culture and makes no sense. To the Greek, it would be like saying, like, it just doesn't make any sense, right? It is already appropriate for every audience and we need to understand that the gospel uh, cannot be manipulated to match the audience's desire, right? They're, they're what they want to see in a savior. So Paul sees this in the Jews, seeking a Messiah in the shape of their desires. He sees this in the Greeks, the Gentiles, who were seeking a God that fit their perception of what a God should be. So on one hand, the Jews were hedonists, and on the other, the Greeks were just making their own gods. It's ironic and it's foolish. See, the gospel is really interesting because the method by which, uh, the method by which Jesus saves and the form in which Jesus came is contradictory to what we would perceive to be the way a God should come, should look, and should save. It doesn't make sense, right? How is death victory? How is being mortal all-powerful? It makes no sense, right? Here's a couple quotes that I think help us understand this foolishness, the, the perceived foolishness of the gospel, which in turn really reflects the foolishness of our own minds. Here's one quote by Thistleton. He writes, Death on the cross was regarded in Roman society as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. It was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists and could never be imposed upon a Roman citizen or more respectable criminals. It was so offensive to good taste that crucifixion was never even mentioned in polite society except through the use of euphemisms. For Gentiles who might imagine a divine savior figure and for Jews who expected a Messiah anointed with power and majesty, the notion of a crucified Christ, a Messiah on a cross, was an affront and it was an outrage. Here's Shriner, he reads, or he writes, actually there the Corinthians claim to wisdom reveals in fact their foolishness and their self-deception and their preoccupation with the things of the present evil age. What they prize as wise, God rejects as foolish. And then finally, Gordon Fee, he writes on this, their boasting in men, in their wisdom, in the name of wisdom, ulti ultimately impacts the nature of the gospel itself. And this is where I want to get at. The foolishness that the church is prone to and the non-church outsiders are prone to is to look at the gospel and to make it what we want it to be rather than receiving it for what it is. And this is the danger both in and outside the church. We need to be careful of this. People are, mankind generally speaking, both believers and non-believers, we're all foolish in some sort of, in some sort of way. We might think to ourselves, we are higher intelligence. You know, if we believe this or we follow this ideology or we follow this philosophy, or we understand this in a certain way, or we have this certain set of beliefs or understandings of the world, if we attain a certain level of knowledge, we are somehow greater than others. That we have this greater understanding of things. That we have a certainty of certain things. But that's just simply not the case. I'll tell you how foolish the human mind really is. Think about even just science and how much it's evolved in the last 10, 20, 40, 50 years. Think about what we thought of COVID just a year ago. 
right? Think about all the things we thought masks do and don't do, vaccines do and don't do, that social distancing does and does not do, research does, what all, like things we discovered about gravity, Newton's laws. How about this? How many times does it take to fold a piece of paper to reach the moon? It's only 42 folds, 42 folds and you reach earth to moon. Think about that. It doesn't make any sense to you, right? But look it up. I looked it up this morning. I know it's fact checked. It's 42 folds and, if the, and the paper has to be 0.001 centimeters. That's a thousandth. That's approximately the thickness of the paper in your Bible, actually. The paper would also have to be immensely large. But you can fold it 42 times, you reach moon. Think about that. The human mind, you might think, is capable of knowing everything to a certain degree. And then some other bit of information will come and then all of a sudden it breaks everything down. Are only the smartest people on earth Christians? Absolutely not. Are only the dumbest people on earth Christians? Absolutely not. It has nothing to do with just intelligence. Which leads me to my second point. The power of the gospel. Here's an interesting thing. Paul does not defend the authenticity or legitimacy of the gospel by then proclaiming, you would think, foolishness of the, of the, people, uh, the, foolishness of the gospel in the perspective of the non-believer. Well, here's why it's not foolish. That's what you would think he would argue. That's not where he leads the conversation. And that's certainly where I don't want to lead you to. We would be foolish ourselves today to read this text and understand Paul's words to mean, see how stupid mankind is? That's not what he's saying. That's simply not the point of the text today. Read it carefully and note this. What is the opposite of foolishness? What's the oppos opposite of that? To be a fool. It's intelligence or to be wise, wisdom, right? Well, what is the opposite of power then? The opposite of power is probably something like weakness, right? You would think that a verse in 18 that starts with the words, for the word of the cross is foolishness, would then end with the defense of the cross is actually a manifestation of God's wisdom and intelligence or something like that. But read the end of that verse. Instead, Paul pits the foolishness of man to not be able to see the cross properly with the claim that the gospel is in fact the very power of God. So here's a really weird thing about this verse. It compares and it pits foolishness to power. It's, it's, an, odd, it's an odd battle that Paul is putting against each other. Here's Thistleton one more time. The contrast in this verse is with folly, foolishness, because folly leads to striving that is ineffective, fruitless, and empty. However, Christian believers for whom the proclamation of the cross becomes an effective reality are turned away from such a fate, foolish journey, and find themselves by God's grace on the way to salvation. This is about the power to be saved. That which could be perceived as foolish is in fact packaged that way on purpose by divine creation because the gospel and our salvation medium is not meant to serve our preconceived notions of how salvation should be attained and what a God should do to save us. It is seemingly and naturally folly or foolish to the human mind in its presentation because it not only breaks the mold of our thinking, it breaks us fully and wholly and it hopes to make us new. Because every bit of us needs saving, even our thoughts. Shriner, the cross is foolishness for unbelievers, but the power and wisdom of God for believers. Gordon Fee, the cross is in fact 
Uh, cross, in fact, is folly to wisdom, humanly conceived. But it is God's folly, folly that is at the same time His wisdom and His power. So here's the reason Paul is comparing foolishness to power. It's because the gospel is not about showing men how stupid they are. It's about showing men how sinful they are. If faith was an intelligence issue, as I mentioned earlier, only the smartest people on earth would be believers. But the house of God, look around you, is composed of all ranges of intelligence. Look to the person on your left and your right. These are not the most intelligent people on earth. These are not the dumbest people on earth. Actually, they might be the dumbest people on earth. But anyways, we're in a certain percentile. To Paul, his concern is demonstrating and iterating the effectiveness of the cross to save us. To Paul, his concern is demonstrating and iterating that fact that is by the power of God alone, not by the power of man. With no contribution from the efforts of man can any person be saved from sin. The Corinthians thought, I've attained a higher wisdom and I know a greater gospel than this. This gospel, not good enough. So I've improved upon it. It is now enough to save me. That's really your idea. It's not God's conception of the method of salvation. Thistleton, one more time. Most characteristically in Paul, power denotes that which is effective. Effective to save. The proclamation of a humiliated, crucified Christ, whose manner of death was too shameful for mention in polite conversation, had nothing to do with the spectacular or manipulative, but effectively empowered most especially as power for, rather than as a Christianized version of secular power over. A lot of non-Christians will come up to me and they'll ask, why doesn't God just appear before me and show his reality, like show that he's real so I can believe him? Here's my answer to that. Belief in the existence of God alone is not really what saves you. That's part of the gospel. That was actually only point number one of what I shared with you in terms of the gospel. Believing in the existence of God won't actually move your heart to love him. Many people, I would argue, in the church who are actually non-Christians, believe in a God, believe in a divine power, believe in something, someone called God that is up there. But they don't love Him. His presence in front of you, even through miraculous methods, won't move you to love Him. You know who knows that God exists but doesn't love God? Satan himself. Knows God, knows His Word, can quote Scripture, can even say, can even identify Christ as the Son of God. He knows so much theologically and yet still does not love Him. The point of the Christian faith is not about just knowing things. It's also about loving and following and becoming more and more like Him. That is the power of the gospel. That's why it's ineffective for us to simply say it's all about knowledge and knowing things right and being able to, to conceive things in the right way through our, human, uh, through our own human conception. A lot, of the, a lot of the Christian faith, really, I would say central to the Christian faith, is about our relationship, our journey, our experience, and our walk with the Lord. And that is beyond anything that human, the human mind can conceive. A lot of people say, well, how do you know? How can you be sure? How can you be certain? How can you be secure of these things? 
How do you know, how do I know you love your parents? How do I know you love your partner? How do I know you love anyone? Can you prove it? Well, I can do these things. See, I gave my mom flowers. Does that really prove you love your mom? Oh look, I bought my dad a car. Does that really prove you love your dad? Oh look, I'm sacrificing my holiday to spend it with my girlfriend. Does that really prove that you love this person? Actions are limited in their ability to define certainty in relationship. Ask any married couple. Who's married here? I think it's only honey, right? Ask him. How do you guys know you love each other? It's based on vow, it's based on witness, and it's based on day-to-day -day experience. You know when he's gonna know and when she's gonna know that they certainly love each other? When they breathe their last and they can say, this man lived and died with me. The Christian faith is about endurance in that journey. And until you breathe your last, and you can look back and say, I fought the fight, I ran this race, my conclusion for you today is this. Earlier I said that we're, we are to embrace that the gospel is indeed foolish. But if you followed the line of my argument carefully, you would have noted that I'm making the statement from the perspective from outside the faith or from the natural human perspective. It is foolish because it doesn't serve any of our passions and doesn't fit the mold of what we expect from a divine power. It's foolish today because it serves no need. It is archaic. It is meaningless. But brother and sister, I encourage you as I believe Paul is urging the Corinthians back then to be reminded that our notion of human wisdom and value is powerless to save. It's ineffective to do that. It is by the means that God has ordained alone that any man could even hope for an eternal, that eternal end that differs from what we deserve. So embrace the foolishness of the gospel. Be a fool, a fool for God and a fool for your faith. For it would be far better to be a fool here and now than a fool there and later. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain and what he cannot lose. That's Jim Elliot. We like to prop up human achievement and human genius, but as believers we know that our celebration is not in what we have done or can do or what we have achieved, but what Christ has done and what he has achieved for us. I leave you with this quote. This is Napoleon Bonaparte. I've shared this multiple times. I love this quote. This is Napoleon, a non-believer. He reads, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And this hour, millions of men and women would die for him. And that is what I end you with. Let's, tie, let's take some time to reflect on what we've learned. Just pray on your own. Just think about, meditate uh, on your own. And then uh, our worship team will lead us in a final song.